Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you want to dip your toe in the water, why don't you head over to onenightinproduct.com after this, check out some of my other episodes, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, tell all your friends to get their swimsuits on too. On tonight's episode, we'll be talking about setting yourself up for success by setting a long-term product strategy to help you 10x your users' outcomes. We'll talk about some of the problems with betting in true customer centricity and making sure you're not just concentrating on who you're selling to now, but who you'll be selling to in the future. We'll also talk about what it's like taking over your boss's product consultancy, scraping his name off the door, and then going on to write a book with him anyway. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Rajesh Nerlika. Rajesh is a product advisor, coach, recruiter, and author who's passionate about using the power of tech to change lives. Rajesh describes himself as a Texas boomerang, having failed to resist the lure of chimichangas and heading back home to Austin after a career that took him on a grand tour around North America. Rajesh is the co-author of Build What Matters, a book that promises to teach you to deliver key outcomes with vision-led product management. Hi, Rajesh. How are you tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's a pleasure to have you here. So first things first, you are the CEO of Podify. So for the record, who are Podify and what problem do they solve? Yeah, so uh, Podify, we are a product advisory firm and the key problems we're solving is working with startup executives and founders and product team leads to A, become a more product-driven organization and do that by focusing on what their customers care about and, and building kind of what matters. And that's sort of the, the, that what led into the book. There's sort of like two big buckets of things that we help companies with. So product vision and strategy, where are you going? How are you going to get there? Why is your product going to win out in the market? How do you bring the entire team along on that journey and, and create and communicate a very clear vision and strategy to realize it? The second thing that we do uh, is product team development. So as you mentioned, uh, we do a lot of recruiting. So we have a hiring service. And then we also do a lot of coaching, uh, everything from product executives to individual product managers and entire product teams at some of our larger clients. And what types of company are you working for mainly? I mean, is it a real mix or does it tend very heavily towards, say, startups or scale-ups? I mean, you've mentioned larger clients as well. So is it literally across the board? or It is mostly across the board, probably a slight lean towards startups and also scale-ups or growth stage companies, yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that I was thinking as you were describing that was that, and it's a common theme on this podcast, uh, last few episodes with various people talking about similar issues, is like there's a bunch of companies maybe the larger, maybe more legacy companies that are doing product, quote unquote, badly, whether or not they're actually doing it badly or managing to succeed by mistake or whatever, but they're not doing things the way that presumably your book would advise or any of the other books would advise. And they're kind of stuck in a legacy mindset and find it really hard to transition into a proper product-led organization. Do you work with those types of companies too? Or are you working with people that have kind of got it already and are just trying to get there better? Or do you have to try and transform people as well? You know, I'd say there's a, a little bit of a mix. What I'd say is our clients probably would lean to to saying, oh, I understand the value of being a product-driven organization and I would love some help trying to make this transition because sometimes, you know, the, the behavior is built into the DNA of the organization. It's been like that for so long and making this transition isn't easy. What I will say is like, I don't really ever think of it as like, oh, this company is not doing product right. What I've realized is kind of having done this for so long is 
product has taken so many shapes and flavors at, at different organizations because it is probably one of the newest functions that's been introduced, especially even in the tech community, right? Or at tech companies. And what that means is that the sort of like genesis of the of the product team may have taken many different flavors. And sometimes it might have been more delivery oriented. It's around like kind of, hey, you, sir, you sit between the business and technology and make sure things ship on time. And therefore, it's kind of that's sort of like what's been what's been happening. And at other organizations, you know, there may have been a, a realization or, or like they might have had a different value prop for what product's role was. And it might have been more around you represent the voice of the customer and therefore, you know, it's a key role. And we want to make sure that we're always building the things that matter to our customers. And then there's, you know, there's a spectrum in between. So, you know, I think that that there's kind of that aspect. And honestly, what what I don't know if it's surprising for me, but we do work with a lot of startups and some of them just, you know, there's so many new founders who are first-time entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. not all of them have come from a product background or they may not have worked at a company where they saw what what sort of a product-driven approach could look like. Yeah. And so they also have sort of some biases on what, what product, the role of product is. And so, uh, you know, I think there's just kind of a wide spectrum and, and like to, to each his own, right? Every company has gotten <laughs> to where they are doing what's what worked for them. And uh, there, there's no right or wrong way to, to build a company, obviously. As product folks, we, we talk about, you know, the scalability of being product driven and how you can kind of accelerate the growth by having sort of the product mindset. But uh, there's a lot of ways to, to build that company. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that point around founders that have come from non-traditional product backgrounds that they come inheriting all the biases of of their previous organization. I remember doing a talk a little while back where I described the fact that, for example, that if your startup supports or serves enterprise clients, for example, that quite often you'll find someone who used to work for that type of enterprise client who has a fantastic idea and then they start a startup to serve that idea but they've come from that world and they have absolutely no idea how to actually make that startup scale to your point. So hopefully your book and others will help with that. I think there's an important point, which is I often talk about the scale, how scalable does your product need to be to hit the business objectives you have, right? There are a lot yeah. of companies who, who set up shop exclusively to go sell to the Fortune 1000. And the reality is they're not Netflix. They don't need a single product that serves millions of customers. They need like a product that can work mostly for like 20 or 30 companies. And that's yeah. an amazing business you can build on top of it. And so I think having some sense of like how critical is scalability to our business model or our goals is an important part of the, the sort of like decision on the role of product as well. No, absolutely. But Podify didn't start out as Podify. That's right. Yeah, I've done my research. It started out as Foster Innovation with Ben Foster your co-author of the book. And then you helped reboot it, I think, in around 2019 and rebranded it, uh, rebuilt it as Podify. Was that like a full-on pivot and total reinvention of what you were doing or was it more of a branding exercise or somewhere in between? Like what drove that change? Yeah, for sure. It wasn't a pivot. It was not necessarily a branding exercise. Honestly, it was about scalability for us. And so the story here was, uh, you know, my background has been in product, mostly at startups. Ben and I worked together at a company in Washington, D.C. called Opower. We're related to the residential energy efficiency. Uh, he was the head of product, and that, that was my actually first product job. And Opower went public about seven years ago now. And Ben left the company after the IPO and started doing some advisory and coaching work. And rightfully so, had a very creative name for his firm, which was one person, and it was called Foster Innovation. <laughs> and so he started that about seven years ago. And then I reached out a few years ago, actually coming up on maybe three and a half. And so I was interested in doing some similar type of work, 
happened to be good timing. He ended up joining one of his clients as chief product officer, a company called Go Canvas out of the DC area. So I took over the practice then. And, you know, like, you know, to your point, for a year or so, it was still called Foster Innovation. And we started realizing, like, oh, there's actually a lot of interest in what we do, but it might be weird if we continue to be called Foster Innovation and everyone was like, where's Ben Foster? <laughs> and so that was sort of what drove the, the rebranding to, to Prodify. And now there's you know, two and a half of us working full-time and a few part-time folks. Uh, makes sense. But before that, you had a long career and you've touched on it yourself, working in a bunch of different places, working for different uh, product, you know, working in product for a bunch of different companies. I actually lost count of the number of times I had to click more on your LinkedIn to keep going down and down the list. It seems that you've had a, a real range of experience, which is obviously really helpful for the, the role that you're doing now. One thing that did stick out was a jump from Consumer Insights intern at General Mills to VP of product at hitchters.com. So obviously that's jumping quite a few spaces on the uh, snakes and ladders board at once. But I understand that was a startup. So was that your startup? So that was a student-run company. And when I, I went to business school up at Michigan to kind of get out of the world of, of technology consulting when I was at Accenture before that, and I wanted to transition explicitly into the world of startups. But I was also very interested in getting doing something that was way more consumer-facing. Like Basically, what I learned after five years in working in Accenture's government practice was I was mostly drawn to what we were building and how the citizens uh, were, were going to use it. And so, uh, you know, I went from an engineer to a business analyst, and I just found myself constantly wanting to learn more about the end user and the consumers. And so I went to business school kind of with that explicit goal of getting into something consumer facing and then also building, you know, getting into the world of startups. And so Hitchers was this online ride sharing service well before Uber and Lyft. The general idea was we made it easy to share a black car from the airport to wherever you were going in some of the most expensive cities like New York and San Francisco. So we matched people up when they landed at the airport and then we told them where to go and then they would have like a limousine waiting for them or a nice town car. And so, you know, Jason, you're one of the first people to ever do this much research and ask me about it, but it actually was kind of a pivotal <laughs> thing. And I'll say the time at, at General Mills was kind of foundational for me in the sort of customer centricity world. So I took the internship at General Mills and worked in Consumer Insights. I spent the summer thinking about how to make old El Paso refried beans and Betty Crocker boxed potatoes better and, and, and supporting <laughs> the brand managers and their quest to, to grow the businesses. So I literally sat behind one-way mirrors and listened to focus groups. I went to a grocery store and intercepted people in the aisle and asked them why they picked the boxed potato product they bought. And I, that's where I learned how to, how, to talk to, you know, how to do customer discovery interviews and how to talk to consumers and extract consumer insights, both quantitative and qualitative. I ended up turning the offer down because I missed working in tech so much. And so when I came back second year, I was like, I think I have to stay in tech. I don't, I don't know if transitioning all the way into, you know, this the consumer package good industry is going to is going to cut it for me. And so I came back and worked as as VP of product at Hitchers, and I also started a company, another company with a classmate of mine up at, at Michigan Ross, and um, it was in the sustainability space, which is kind of how I ended up at Opower eventually. So I think. You said before this that you've had something like three startups that you founded and all exited. I don't know if it was exactly three or if it was just three that you exited or if my numbers are wrong entirely. But well, I was going to say, you, you probably qualify as a serial entrepreneur by any measure. What got you into building those companies and getting so passionate about building your own startups? Was it something that you always had the bug for or was it something that you kind of learned as you were working your way through your career? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Every once in a while, I'll stop and think about where this sort of entre entrepreneurial-like mindset came from. I think part of it is sort of growing up. So my dad's 
he has three brothers and all three of them started their own companies in India. So whenever we went to go visit, I would go into their like shops and see what they were doing and just kind of see that they were running their own businesses and each one of them looked pretty cool. And then my dad himself, you know, here in, in the US ended up leaving his job and started his own company uh, right before I went to college. And so I think that just being able to see that was was probably what drove a lot of it. But I think that that was combined with just this maybe curiosity and constant like wondering whether there could be a better way of doing things. And so I think those two things combined is what got me interested in sort of the, the world of entrepreneurship and startups. And yeah, I've actually I've worked at six and three have exited. So kind of like half and, and the ones that didn't <laughs> were, were some of the early ones that I started in my career. And so, you know, definitely learned some lessons, which I talk about in the book. Yeah, I was going to say, like, whether you'd had any startups that hadn't worked out, and it sounds like you've had at least three. I mean, obviously, you say it's in the book, so we can't go through everything. But like, what's one key lesson that you've learned, maybe something that was common across those three things, or like one overriding theme where you sit there and say, this is what I didn't do that I did do when I did the, the three successful exits, for example. Yeah, I think a lack of talking to customers was by far the, the biggest one. And that's the one we talk about in the book. I tell a story about how I built a dating app. And it was something that I had wanted like one or two years earlier, just personally, and I never went and validated that other people might be interested in the idea and also <laughs> didn't do any research on sort of like, what it actually takes to, to build a, big, a dating app. So I think that's kind of at the top. And th this is one of the, we call them the 10 dysfunctions in chapter one of the book. And we kind of open that as the way of setting the stage of the problem that our book was intended to solve. And these are things that we had observed both from our own times as product people in operator roles, as well as having worked with about 75 companies now over the past seven years and just done some pattern matching and what was the things that was holding our clients' product teams back the most, you know? Yeah, that's interesting because if we go back to that idea about the people that have maybe come from a type of company and started to try and found a company on their own to serve the type of company that they used to work for, you sometimes get that bias there as well, right? It's like you're sitting there saying, oh, well, I used to work for such and such a type of company and I, this is what I would want. And then you extrapolate that to the nth degree and end up with something that literally just that company would have wanted. So it sounds like in a way, that was the same story-ish with you saying the dating app, like, this is what I would have wanted, but no one else did. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's a major fallacy is thinking that you were the customer and the only customer, and then just assuming that your requirements or needs or preferences are that they represent the entire market, right? And I think this is the, the fallacy that leads to non-product-driven organizations, right? Where you take the one-off customer request and just say, oh, well, this next customer wanted something slightly different. That's fine. I'm sure there, you know, other customers will say the same thing and not doing going to do the validation work and be like, well, let me go talk to three or four other customers and see how they would want to solve this problem <laughs> so that we have a scalable solution down the road. But then after you exited, presumably your third startup, you gave up on startups for a bit and you seem to go around a few different roles, either as an advisor, obviously you've done the recruitment stuff, you've you've worked as product leads in certain organizations as well. So what was it that stopped you making startups and got you into more of a kind of I want to say going more of a product management focus specifically like what was it that drove that yeah sure so I've kind of always stayed in the product management space but what happened was um, after I worked at Opower I went to another startup in the DC area as a senior PM and it was a fintech we had a financial wellness product and our company was called Hello Wallet so I was there for about a year before we got acquired by one of our investors which was Morning Startup in Chicago 
And so, uh, you know, ran the product team for about a year after the acquisition and then moved up to Chicago to join Morningstar and take over an additional product suite to build out kind of a, a full portfolio of employee benefits. And I, you know, I spent two years at Morningstar and had a great, great experience, really enjoyed the people I was working with. But honestly, I kind of missed the world of startups <laughs> soon after I got there and started seeing kind of how a slightly larger organization would operate. So I started doing some advisory work at 1871 on the side up in Chicago, and I really enjoyed it. And so, you know, that was kind of how I got my startup fix. And then, like I said, a few years ago, we moved to Austin and I left Morningstar and I reached out to Ben Foster and I said, Hey, I know you've been doing this type of work, mostly with startups for quite some time now. Uh, could you tell me more about how you got started? And, and like I said, I'm just having to be a good time. So I ended up taking over the practice. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm also curious about your recruitment activities as well. So obviously, you say that you offer those services now, your day job, but you've also had that as your specific day job from time to time. You've actually been a product recruiter. And by product recruiter, I mean, obviously, all heads of product get involved in product recruitment. But I'm assuming by product recruiter, you're talking about actually sourcing and matching candidates. Now, that's not something everyone enjoys, like the whole process of finding people and screening people and matching people. Was that something that you found really interesting? Or was it just something that you got into because it was needed and then sort of built some expertise in it? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess I've always found it interesting in terms of like just thinking about the people side of a business and the product and like you know, I just believe so, so much that, you know, it's people that build products and the org structure and communication structures and culture and environment that they're, you know, under the con- the goals that they're being given influence so much of the end user experience that it matters a lot when you think about building the right team and putting the right person in the right role at the right time and those types of things. And so there was a kind of a, there was an interest and then there was also a market sort of like request and demand for this, right? So we worked with a lot of companies. Many of them did not have product people. We, you know, we started working with the CEO or the founder or a CTO, and they eventually realized, like, wow, I think I need a product manager as a full-time hire. Is that something you can help with? And you know, we we realized that they have never hired product people, and there's something a little bit unique about hiring product managers, right? We don't have the extra kind of objective data set that uh, you know an engineer might have when they complete a coding review or a designer might have when you look at the design portfolio, right? There's kind of not really a tangible artifact you can look at that product managers have to, to sort of objectively recruit. And there's also a slightly different mindset you need with product managers. And, and so it's hard to pressure test and, and, and like, uh, you know, recruit for that. And so this is a service that's kind of gained steam, honestly, in the last uh, probably two years with our clients. And so that's kind of how, you know, I've stepped into that product recruiter role once in a while. Excellent. I'm sure you see some interesting CVs as well. Uh, Interesting to say the least. In fact, it was, uh, you know, I probably looked at 2000 over the last 18 months and they were, they were so bad that we ended up creating a template for product managers. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were just like, I I, I sometimes just didn't, couldn't even follow them, uh, sort of the, the trajectory and outcomes and stuff. Fair enough. Well, that'd be some, Useful homework for anyone listening to this that's looking for a job. That's right. So you wrote a book with Ben Foster, your erstwhile, well, I guess erstwhile boss from back in the day, Build What Matters. Now that came out in, I think, September 2020. So it's been around for a few months now, but still fairly early in in its life cycle. How's the reception been so far? Have you had lots of 
good feedback and reviews and people coming up to you and thanking you for it? Has it been pretty solid? Yeah, it's been great. And it's been amazing. You know, I think we're at like 4.5 stars on Amazon. So like, you know, quantitatively, things are looking really good. Uh, honestly, you know, Ben and I spent a lot of time, obviously, writing the book last year. And the most rewarding thing is that random strangers will reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter and mm-hmm. say, hey, I just got through with your book. It was so helpful. And like, as an author, there's nothing more meaningful to know that something you put out there and sort of best practices and lessons learned has actually helped other folks. And that's kind of that was what, what prompted us to write write the book after we created the vision-led framework uh, a couple years ago that now is intended to capture all of the best practices we had learned from working with with different product teams and and being product managers ourselves. But not everyone's good at writing books, right? So was that something that came naturally to the both of you? And did you manage to sort of divvy it up effectively and really work that through? Or was it a real struggle from time to time? It was stressful, sometimes time-consuming. Overall, I really liked it. And I'd say the thing that was probably more complicated was the fact that we co-wrote the book, yeah. which meant that we had to be largely aligned on some of the key messages and the, the phrasing and all those things. Now, the good news is Ben and I see like 90%. We have like 90% overlap on our product philosophies. And it wouldn't be surprising, obviously, because I actually you know built a lot of my early product chops while I was on his team and so kind of absorbed a lot by osmosis. So overall, you know, I had a really good time doing it. It, it. You know, it did take a lot. There were a lot of weekends where I was just kind of holed up in my office mm-hmm. on the iPad, like writing, you know, sketch, you know, doing a bunch of editing and then getting back to the computer and sending versions back and forth between me and Ben and, and our publisher. But uh, so th- that was it was good. But honestly, I enjoyed it so much that like this year, I, it, I just felt like a little bit of a gap in my life. I was like, oh, I haven't been writing as much. And so mm-hmm. I started to do a little bit more on like Twitter threads. I try to do a blog post, uh, you know, each month and, and just kind of continue to build on the sort of concepts of the framework. Was there anything particularly controversial that you had to have an arm wrestle over at any point? Or did you manage to come to a uh, a gentleman's agreement over anything that you did disagree on? No, honestly, I can't think of anything off the top of my head where I was like, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree and write some really awkward chapter here (laughs) where no one's going to know what what we meant. Um, No, like I said, I think we were like 90% aligned. And, you know, I think the place where Ben and I probably differed is is sort of like how data-driven to be versus how much to trust your gut instinct. And, you know, I think the, the reality is, I think we both agreed that you just need a balancing act. And the hardest part of being a good product manager is knowing when to, when to trust your gut versus when to trust the data. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just on a high level helicopter view, what is the core value proposition of the book? I mean, you've touched on it slightly, but in your own words, why should people read this book? You should read this book if you think it's important to have a clear product vision and a strategy to realize it. So if you feel like there's a lot of swirl or churn and nobody knows where the product is going, you're constantly in firefighting mode, you're being reactive to the customer requests and tech debt and all those things. That's what the framework was intended to sort of solve is this world where... And like, you know, we talked about it... Actually, I don't remember if we talked about this explicitly in the book. You know where we landed was it felt like the pendulum swung a little bit too far on the agile transition, and that there was sort of this assumption like if you want to build good products, you just do everything that your customers ask you to do. But then <laughs> the question becomes, okay, one, that means you'll probably only be building the things that your customers today want you to do. But then, like, how do you grow a business? What if you need to go to like the next market segment, and how do you like go? build the things that these people don't, don't even know, aren't even using your product and you're not getting any feedback from them on. And so I think, 
this was our attempt to sort of like bring things back to the middle and say 100%, you need to have some iterative changes to your product. And those largely come from like either observing the data, quantitative or qualitative or, or a combination of the both. But you have to balance that with other needs that come with modern SaaS platforms. And that's sort of what led us to create this like roadmap balancing framework where we talk about like the three categories of innovation, which is like progress towards the vision, iteration, which is like fixing things in the current product, whether it's usability issues, optimizing conversion funnels, and then operation, which is just the cost of having modern SaaS platforms, right? Performance, security, uptime, tech debt, bugs, internal tools, all those things. And so, you know, obviously, when we created a framework that says you should have a a multi-year vision of where your product is going to end up in a few years, we had to complement that with the reality of like very few teams could dedicate 100% of their product development capacity to just like working on that vision, right? And so that was why we came up with the categories and said, do a top-down allocation first before you go prioritize a single thing. Talk about what percentage of capacity should go towards these three categories of, of different product development. You know? And then you could, by doing so, you can also start comparing apples to apples because like, how do you stack rank a new feature against a bug, against a usability issue? It's like impossible to know which one to, to really uh, focus on when you try to compare them to each other. Yeah, there's this whole concept which has come up before of treating your time allocation as if it's like a portfolio, right? So yeah, I mean, I've worked B2B and I've worked in more sales-led organizations and it's possible to find a way in those organizations, absolutely, but it's always a fight, right? Because you've always got that next thing and there's been loads of really good articles written about some of the struggles of being a fully sales-led development organization. So I think, yeah, the the thing that I've seen probably offer the most hope is that allocation like you're talking about and just say, look, okay, we're just going to take this on the chin. We know this is going to happen, but we're going to try to control it. And as long as you get that exec buy-in to say, okay, well, yeah, fine, you can have your 15% and we'll stand behind you when you push back, then hopefully that is when you don't get that buy-in right that's when it starts to fall apart yeah everything's an and not an all and that, that's yeah. where it becomes a problem yeah 100 percent. why can't you do more and and you know we talk about this in the book but the genesis behind this was actually a system that that ben developed with the executive team at opower we called it the sales token system and the short story was he the head of sales and the ceo got into a room one day and he, he was like i can't just keep building everything sales is asking for we'll never get to the actual roadmap that we as a product team believe is what our customers need and so they they said okay what if we did an exercise what if we all like you know wrote down or thought about what percentage of our capacity should go towards like sales like things that the sales team believes are the, the like things that we should be building and they kind of naturally agreed on, I think it was an 85-15 split. And so then we were like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then they ended up operationalizing that sort of model by saying the sales had like this finite number of tokens that they could use to, to like get whatever they want built on the roadmap. And it was like 15% of overall capacity. And we tracked it with the operations team to, to make sure that it never went to like 50% or anything. So, Yeah, I can imagine there are some conversations from time to time. But again, as long as you can have that as an aspiration and try and enforce it, I guess that could work pretty well. But the framework, the vision-led product management framework, which this book, I assume, is kind of the encapsulation of, but also is something that you've worked on outside of this and you've worked on it and developed it over the last few years. Now, there are a lot of frameworks out there. It seems that there's more coming out all the time and there's always the next book which tells you how to do things and new different approaches and stuff like that. Would you say your framework is like a 
an overarching thing that can just replace everything or is it something that goes alongside and complements other frameworks that you might use around some other parts of your product that it doesn't cover? Yeah, so it's definitely not some overarching end-all be-all. And I think, you know, I did a bunch of customer discovery as we thought about launching another framework. And the reality of how most product teams use frameworks is that they pick and choose the parts of different frameworks that work well for their organization. And that's great. The reality of what that means is every organization has kind of a Frankenstein framework that where they've kind of over time built and built it up. And the reality is, even within the framework that we talk about, we use other frameworks. Uh, for example, we like the Kano model for competitive differentiation and like informing where your, you know, how your product's going to be different in the market. So, you know, I would say that we had not seen a framework that was so specific about how do you go and create a compelling product vision and get use it to to like. And, and I think if I were going to back up and talk about why that's even important, I think it comes down to the fact that like. If you want to be a strong product leader, you have to have some way to communicate where you think the product should go and therefore, ha- and then get everyone rallied around that and then go into the execution mode, right? But without that, you probably will still remain in some kind of reactive mode. And th- there probably is a time and a place for that reactive mode. For example, you know, when you first launch a new product, you probably just listen to all the things that who, who's using it, who's not, what are they saying about it, all those things. And like that, that might be totally fine. I mean, you not need the vision at that point. But at some point, you may find that product market fit and you're like, actually, there's like three legitimate paths we could follow and we need to pick one and we need to rationalize why we're going to go down one over another. And I think that's where the framework perhaps comes in uh, into play and sort of like really says, this is a concrete and it's a customer-centric vision. It's, it explains what do we want our customer experience to look like in the future. It's not a bulleted list of features of all the things we need to build. And it's not some generic statement like we're going to be a market leader in this space, right? <laughs> it's very oriented around what your customers want and what you want the experience to, to look like. And then we just do the gap analysis. And that's like, you know, you want that three years down the road where all the things you would need to have to, to realize that. And why would you, how would you sequence that work in a particular way that makes sense from a business and finance and like strategic perspective? That sounds good and uh, obviously something we should all aspire to have that vision and the strategy to support it. And I think, as you say, so often that that feels like it's lacking because, as you say, people are just, they they almost feel that reacting to individual customer requests is what being customer focused means. They're focusing on each individual customer. And and, you you get the recency bias that comes in and just chasing your tail a little bit. So, yeah, hopefully this can be really helpful in trying to explore that with some of these companies that maybe aren't there yet but have you got any like really good examples of times where you've taken this framework in maybe to a client or you know maybe even used it yourself and you feel that it's been the difference between say success and failure of a particular product or product line that you're trying to help out with like what's a good example of a time where this has really shone through for you yeah so there's plenty of examples in the book we wanted to make sure it never read like a textbook. So in almost every chapter, every few pages, you'll see either a story from us or a story from one of our clients explaining the sort of concept in the real world. And all of those are now available on our site. But, you know, I, I probably won't call out a specific one in its entirety right now. I think the themes of things that we've seen, number one, one of the foundations of the framework is actually thinking about what are the right metrics of success. And the key point that we make in this part of the framework is Every company has something with the dollar sign in front of it, right? And those are often lagging indicators of product success. And so the question is, how do you capture the leading indicators, which is always around what is the customer value that was created? And 
you know, the way that the business captures that value just is largely a pricing and packaging problem, right? And so we often start with what are the metrics of success? And I think this starting with that in the framework, you know, I've seen it work time and time again where clients realize that because they have to define that first, that it resolves all the misalignment that happens internally of who is this for? What problem is it trying to solve? And like that, you know, we would say that's where 90% of roadmap prioritization debates stem from is that people are keeping score in a different way, <laughs> or they just believe that we should be solving different problems for different like personas or market segments, right? Yep. And so we, we push that up into the front of the framework and it's always like a forcing function. And the entire framework, I would argue, is really about you know, it's a facilitated way of getting alignment internally. And because if you don't have some of that foundation alignment on what metrics matter and what, you know, what, what market are we going after, it doesn't matter how great your product vision is, right? And so there's a little bit of a sequencing that we provide in the book. And the book is basically split up into three main parts. In the first part, we talk about the 10 dysfunctions and why we think the framework can help. In the second part, we present the theory of the kind of the three key concepts, right? One is picking the right outcome metrics and, and thinking about the customer outcome, we call it key outcomes. And we have pyramids where we break the metrics down into its constituent parts. The second part is how do you think of a customer journey vision for how to 10x that outcome for your customers? How do you make incredible value, game-changing, a launching game-changing product in the market? And then the third major step is to like kind of work backwards from that vision and create a multi-year roadmap or a strategic plan that says, these are the gaps we need to fill from where we are today to realize that vision. And then the third part of the book, we really get into more of the tactical aspects. So the first chapter there is this balanced roadmapping concept, which we covered. Then it's all about the right processes and the right people uh, to like actually implement the framework. So, you know, it was intended to be a guide that introduced theory, but then brought it straight back to the real world and says like, this is not a textbook. Uh, here's the the templates, and and then we built a bunch of digital resources that went along with the book, uh, worksheets, templates, examples, guides to like help people who were interested in implementing any of the concepts they read about uh, for each chapter. Again, sounds really good. And uh, we'll obviously link that into the show notes as well. But before we do that, you said that you're passionate about your life's legacy on the world. And obviously, you're doing your part for product management. But are you involved in any other non-product management initiatives to try and make the world a better place? Are there any other passion projects you've got on at the moment? Yeah, so I'd say the the only other one I, I've been thinking a lot about has been charitable giving. And, you know, my wife and I have been very fortunate and we've thought about, you know, what are the causes we want to support in our lives and uh, what are the best vehicles or channels to do that? And like, this was a great question, by the way, Jason, in your kind of in the, in the, in the prep form for the, the interview. <laughs> Honestly, this stemmed from a part of the framework. And so, you know, as we were building the framework, we've been using it for, for a while. We present this idea of a key outcome. And so what I did myself was, oh, if I were going to think about what my key outcome in life is, like, how would I explain that? Because if I couldn't explain that, then how could anyone ever apply this like framework and concept in the real world? I'll be honest, the first thing I put up there was sort of like happiness. And then I broke happiness down into different things. And then I thought about it. And I was like, actually, I don't think that's the key outcome for me on a personal level. I think it's about leaving a legacy and making this world a better place than, than you know when I came into it. And so then I thought about how do you break that down into different aspects, right? Obviously, I've worked in the sustainability space. And so I think about the environmental like sort of aspects of this. I've worked in the financial wellness space, and I recognize the sort of like economic aspects of people's lives. I've worked in healthcare now, so I recognize the sort of like physical wellness. And so for me, when I thought about like that, it really helped me realize like, okay, 
there are a lot of different things I could do to move the needle on some of these things that I'm passionate about with these causes. And you know, for me, I've started to realize some of that might come through my work. I might go work at a company that sort of addresses this challenge or this mission in a, with a digital product. I might also go volunteer my time in certain aspects, right? And just go support like a, a nonprofit here in Austin or something that's doing something there. And I might also just, you know, we might also donate money to, to some of these causes. And so the, the context of that was actually coming out of like, okay, how do we support all the things that we care about in our lives? And, you know, we have a finite amount of time. And so that was sort of the, the genesis behind that idea of like leaving a legacy and then how charitable giving ended up being an important part. And I've been fortunate to work with a couple of clients who actually did have digital products in the charitable giving space. And that kind of pushed my thinking a lot on sort of what types of products could be cool and interesting. And, and both of those companies have really interesting products. Uh, so, Yeah, I think everyone who works in product or most people that I've spoken to that I've asked this question, there's always this kind of goal of, yeah, maybe one day I'll work for that health tech startup that you know I keep thinking about or whatever, just because it's nice to think that you're doing something for someone other than yourself. So yeah, I guess you get to work with a bunch of different types of companies. So as you say, hopefully you'll be able to make a big difference that way. And where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about your framework or maybe find out about your book or ask you any questions about anything they've heard today? Yeah, sure. Uh, LinkedIn is probably where I'm most active. So they can just add me or follow me. I post a lot of content. Most of the what I try to focus on is like applying the framework in the real world so that it can feel real and, and not just theoretical. And if anyone is interested in learning more about the framework, our site, Prodify.group, is a great place to go. There's a lot of resources and we have a lot of those kind of digital worksheets, templates, artifacts available there as well. I shall appropriately link it in and again, hopefully we'll get a few people coming over and finding out more. Hope so. Well, that's been a really fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you spending the time and taking us through some of your thoughts and experience. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But uh, yeah, as for now, again, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Jason. And thank you for doing this. And I know how much time it must take and really appreciate what you're doing for the product community across the world. So thank you for taking the time. I really enjoyed being here today. Thanks for listening. I hope you now spend some time focusing on your own product vision. If you like this episode, then again, please pop over to the website onenightinproduct.com and check out some of my other episodes with thought leaders and practitioners. Sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your podcast app. Make sure you never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.